10 or saw the email that went out this week, you'll see that we're taking a quite a different approach today. We have not three words, but three chapters. And so I hope you packed your lunch and dinner so we can work through all these. No, uh, that's not what we're going to do. Um, we'll see how things go here this morning. I have wrestled uh, for some time how I was going to approach the text today and handle this and do justice to it. Not for my sake, but for the sake of the gospel, for your sake as well, that it might be profitable, that it might perfect us as a church. But when we come to this text this morning, the text in front of us is very different than the previous verses and the laws that we've been going over in the Ten Commandments. You see, the Ten Commandments were God's capital L law, not just for the children of Israel as his redeemed people, but as the people of God. A constitution for the nation of Israel, something that would be timeless, and that even today these laws stand both to tell us who God is and how they should bear upon our own lives. But the section we come to today is much different. It is not constitutional law, but rather more of case laws. Laws that were written to a specific group of people within a very specific context to address a very specific issue. And you know, our, I think it'd be helpful if we just think about our own constitution and laws here as a nation for a moment to help us understand how we need to approach these laws in comparison and contrast to the Ten Commandments. You know, we, when we became a nation, our forefathers wrote the Constitution of the United States, something that's not easily changed and something that became a foundation for every other law, at least it's supposed to be the foundation for every other law that is written, interpreted, and enforced both as a nation and within our states. You know, over time, more laws were written. Things change, problems arise, new laws have to be written to address those new things. In fact, so that as a result, as things change, some of the old specific case laws that were written seem kind of silly. I don't know if you've ever read a list of some of the old laws, but I have a list of few here this morning of laws in Indiana. Now this first one, I think the middle school boys in our room would really love this one. Did you know that baths cannot be taken between the months of October and March? <laughs> Pedestrians crossing the highway at night are prohibited from wearing taillights. Uh, from a few cities around the state in Warsaw, Indiana, no one may throw an old computer across the street at their neighbor. Okay. In South Bend, it is illegal to make a monkey smoke a cigarette. Norm, this one's for you, okay? In Elkhart, if you were a barber there, it is illegal for barbers to threaten to cut off kids' ears. <laughs> now this one makes sense, all right? In Gary, within four hours of eating garlic, a person may not enter a movie house, a theater, <laughs> or ride a public streetcar. Now, as we think about these laws, and we ponder for a minute, most of them we can probably come up with some underlying principles as to why those laws were written. But just reading this list, 
doesn't really give us that background, does it? And so at best, we would be speculating as to what they were trying to accomplish. But they were seeking to be, encourage people to be civil, to love one another, to love their neighbor as themselves. And so a lot of these laws, we look at them, we think, boy, those are silly laws. Well, in a similar way, when we come to the text today, we have a list of case laws. As we go throughout the rest of the context of God's word, as we go through Exodus, as we go through Leviticus, as we get into the book of Deuteronomy, as we go even into the New Testament, some of these laws we'll get more details on. They'll be explained more fully. Reasons will be given. Some more will be added. So that by the time that the end of the Old Testament comes is completed, we have over 600 case laws that are written to show how a person should live out the Ten Commandments. And so I want for a moment to, to do a comparison between the Ten Commandments and case laws and look at a chart that I'll throw up on the screen here. The Ten Commandments is the capital law they, that constituted them as a nation. This is their foundation. On the other hand, the case laws are constraints for daily living. This is how you live out these foundational laws. This is what it's to look like in your life. The Ten Commandments are general, broad, foundational truths, whereas the case laws are very specific. They're applicational principles. The Ten Commandments are timeless truths that govern all men in all times. The case laws are rules for certain men living in, spe in specific times and within specific contexts. Therefore, they will be dated. In direct application from these laws, these verses we look at today, cannot be made to us in most cases today. Now, while we, as we look through these case laws, and by the way, we're not even going to read this whole section. It would take 15 minutes just to read all three of these chapters. And so I hope you either read this uh, coming in today, or you will go home after the message today or sometime this week and take time to sit down and read all these case laws because just me talking about them up here today is not going to have the, uh, the emphasis, the force of the text unless you read it for yourself. But as you read through all these case laws, you begin to see that there's, there's some foundational truths about God and about our relationship with God and how he works with his people that come out even in these case laws that we don't necessarily even understand or can't figure out the underlying principle behind them. Now, some of them, it is clear. We can figure it out, and especially with the help of the rest of the Old Testament as we do studies from outside. For instance, one of the laws has to do about not going up to the, not having an altar where it requires you to go up steps so you would not, the priests would not expose themselves. Well, as we studied the culture of the day, the Baal and Asherah, when they were worshipped, one of the things they'd do is they'd make great stages as an altar, and, and people would go up and do an indecent acts on them. And so it, it, we can speculate, well, maybe this is why this law was written, to set them apart from the culture of the day and the false worship that was there. There's another law that talks about not boiling a young goat in his mother's milk. And people scratch their heads. Theologians, the best they say, it's, it must be some contrast, some kickback against the other pagan worships of the law. Uh, something has to do with the sanctity of life, but it's attached to worship. 
So rather than me taking the time and walking through every single case law in our text today and trying to, to grapple with, do we understand, are we given the principle behind this? Can we think through, can we speculate as to what is it that God is getting through to us with this, this case law? We want us to take a step back and reflect a little bit on the whole grouping of case laws. Romans 15.4 says that everything that was written in the former days was written down for our instruction. So I want to start with a very basic question of asking, God, why did you include this in your canon? I understand what it has to do with the children of Israel. To help them understand how the Ten Commandments were to live and look in their lives, in their context... But you have said that this text applies to us as a New Testament church. The times have changed. We don't even worship at an altar. Why are these here for us today? What are they supposed to teach us about you? And so we need to ask ourselves, I think, another question that will help us get to the point of these case laws. By doing a, a review of the book, what is the purpose of the book? What is this book seeking to tell us? Well, first of all, this book talks about how Yahweh revealed himself to his people. He steps into their culture. If you think back to Exodus 1 and Exodus 2, you have this question that comes up. You have the, the scene opens up with the children of Israel being in the, the, the nation of Egypt. And a Pharaoh arises who doesn't know Joseph. At the end of Exodus 2, you have the children of Israel crying out to a God with the attitude of, has God forgotten us too? And in Exodus 2, if you flip back there and read at the tail end of the chapter, I'm in Genesis. I'm like, that is not about, am I not talking about marriage today? Flip back too far in my Bible. If you go back to Exodus chapter 2, and you read the tail end of the verse in verse 23 through 25, you read, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and notice what is said. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. They thought that they were forgotten. But God said, I haven't forgotten you. I know you. I am the God who sees. I am the God who hears. I am the God who remembers. I am the God who knows you. And I am the God who's going to deliver you. Now, the children of Israel were looking for physical deliverance. But as we've come to the Ten Commandments, after they were physically delivered we see that God had a greater purpose, not just to make himself known to them as the great I am, the self-existent one, the one who knows them. You have even Pharaoh says, who is this, this Lord, who Yahweh, that I should obey him? And God says, you're going to learn. But secondly, he didn't just want to, them to know him. He said, I'm coming to redeem you. I'm coming to set you free. Not just from Egypt, but from your sin. I want to redeem you unto myself, to worship me, to live in holiness, and to point all nations back to me. 
And so he revealed himself to the nation of Israel. He redeemed the nation. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He says, this is what a holy God looks like. This is what you are to look like. This is my standard. And now he begins, and through the rest of Exodus, he's going to give laws that's going to show them how they then must worship him with their lives. What does it look like to walk in relationship with God? As we come to our text in Exodus chapter 20, I do want to read verses 18 through 25 to set the stage for what God is doing and in moving into these case laws. So Exodus 20, beginning with verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it on, of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may be exposed." So as they come here to the end of the Ten Commandments, they've heard, they've seen the lightning, they've heard the thunder, they've seen the smoke on the mountain, they've felt the earth quake beneath the feet of God, and they were filled with holy fear. I love the picture of God and all his holiness coming down to be among sinful men. You have the people, they understood what this means for them. We're not holy. We're not like God. We can't keep these Ten Commandments. And so they quake in fear. And then one man, one sinful man, approaches God, Moses. How can Moses approach God? A holy God here, he's just as much a sinner because he had an invitation from God. God told him, Moses, this is how you come to me. And so Moses draws near to this holy God. He comes to where God is because he is God's assigned mediator. This is the one. I have provided a way back into my presence. And he tells the children of Israel, it's through an altar. Moses, tell the people, this is how sinful people approach a holy God. They must come to me on an altar, an altar that will have shed blood on it, an altar that we first see back in the Garden of Eden when God kills an animal and clothes the nakedness of Adam and Eve in their shame. He says, yes, I'm a holy God. Here's my standard. But let me tell you how a sinful man can come back and be redeemed to me and worship me. And so as we come into these case laws, there is a greater picture here. 
It is the fact that God in his, in his holiness has, is interested in everything that his children do. There is one way to God's presence. There is one way to have fellowship with him. There is a specific way he wants us to live in this life as his people. One commentator said this as he's looked at the case laws. He said, when all is said and done, when I read the book of the covenant, the first thought that pops into my mind is not, how do I bring these laws into my life? How do I follow them today? Rather, the first thing I think of is, now I see better how God dealt with his people. I remain convinced that we as Christians are supposed to glean from the book of covenant is an understanding of the nature of God and what he requires of his people. What Jesus summarized as loving God and treating your neighbor as yourself. So what are we to learn from these case laws about who God is? What are we to learn about how he relates to his people, including us today? Those who he has sought to redeem from sin, place his name upon them to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and a treasured possession. Well, let's begin by thinking of the way these case laws are framed. I've read the first few here in 22 through 26. They have to do with worship. If you fast forward over to the last portion of our text today, to Exodus 23... Starting in verse 10, let me read these as well. This is the framework for these case laws before he gets into the case laws regarding the tabernacle that we will deal with later. But starting in verse 10 of chapter 23, we read, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor, the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard, with your olive orchard, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I've said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leaven, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. This section of case laws begins with worship, coming to the Lord with an altar, and it ends with worship. This is how many times you are to gather together as a children of Israel to come and worship me together. You are to have certain feasts. And within this, there is an emphasis on, on things that God wants them to do every week, three times a year. How are they supposed to treat their land? But more importantly, that, that God is the one that is orchestrating their time. Now, when we get to Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, and we think particularly about the altar, why don't we do the altars, the sacrifices, the, 
the animal sacrifices anymore. Well, Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 says, When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Why did they have to come every year? Why three times a year did they have to come together to make these sacrifices? Why did God say they had to shed blood on the altar in order to worship him, in order to have a relationship with him? Well, they had to do it all the time because the animals couldn't take away their sins. They were still broken. They were still guilty before the Lord. But when Christ came, Christ became the perfect sacrifice and that his blood was shed for all time. He is, is not the lamb, but as the perfect son of God, living always in light of the Ten Commandments, always fulfilling God's law, never broke. And at the end of his life, he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And, and Philippians 2 says that he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And so that his shed blood on the altar of the cross was sufficient for all time. So that even the very things that are associated with the worship of the children of Israel in this context are not for us today. We don't bring our animals to the, to the worship service because it's been taken care of. This is for a specific time. But what do we learn about God in this? I want to highlight six truths that these worship laws teach us about God, how he relates to his people, and how they are to relate to him. First of all, in Exodus 20, verse 22, think about this for a moment. The Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. The first truth I want to highlight is that God initiated this personal relationship with his people. God came down God talked to sinful man. He condescended to them. He told them how they could have a relationship with him. I think back of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve walked with God. And when they rebelled against the word of God, what does the text say happened? They were cast away from the Garden of Eden. And a flaming sword was put at the entrance of the garden that said, Keep out. And here in Exodus 20, God reaches down and says, I am coming to you to establish a relationship with you. I'm going to restore what you lost in the garden. But the second truth that is very important, not only did God initiate this relationship, but God sets the terms of man's relationships with him. He made a way. Here's the altar, but I care even how you make the altar. Don't hewn the stones. It's to be something that I made, not decorated. In 20 verses 24 and 25 through 26, you have a couple different offerings that are mentioned here. One is the burnt offering. And as you go on through the book of Leviticus, you learn that the burnt offering was when an animal was to be totally consumed on the altar. It was a picture of total devotion to God, that the, the worshiper is not holding anything back for himself. This is God's animal. I'm giving the whole thing to God. The second offering that's mentioned here is a peace offering. 
an offering that was offered to appease the wrath of God. It was a substitute that would die so that the wrath of God would not fall on the worshiper himself. You have this picture of when you come to me, the terms are total devotion. I am putting myself in your hands, God, in your mercy, to do with me as you see fit. I'm coming to you on your terms. Here is my burnt offering. Here is my peace offering. I'm shedding the blood. I'm coming to you on your terms. God is gracious in this. This animals no way satisfy his wrath as Christ sacrificed it. It did not take away the sin. But God said, if you do this, my wrath will be appeased. This is how you come to me. And so he gives them grace. He gives a covering for their sin and for their nakedness. Third truth. God sets the rhythm of life around worshiping him. Exodus 23, daily, weekly, monthly, annually. These things are to keep your calendar. They weren't to plan their lives and then squeeze God and worship into them. No, their very lives were to revolve around a worshipful relationship with God. I find it very interesting that one of the first things, one of the case laws that he seeks to highlight here in 23 is the Sabbath regulations. This is how you must rest. Now consider for a moment, what is, what is the purpose of the Sabbath rest? We go back to them wandering in the wilderness and one of the first times we see applied in their daily living was in the collection of manna. And do you remember the reason that God told them to rest on the seventh day. On the sixth day, they were to collect twice the amount of food because God was going to provide twice as much food on the sixth day to provide for them in the Sabbath rest. That they would focus on what he provided. That they'd remember that this manna was what he provided. And did they listen? No. Some went out on the seventh day to collect and there was none. Some wanted, you know, some on other days would seek to save manna and it would rot. They didn't follow God's instructions, but God said, this, this is about my provision for you. You work six days and then you rest because I am the one that gives you the job. I am the one that provides for your needs. I'm the one that gives you your talents, your abilities. And it's interesting that when he talks about the Sabbath rest, if you go back to Exodus 20, verses 1 through 11, he actually talks about the masters. Masters, you must give rest to your servants on the seventh day. The way you work, those, your servants, those who work under you. Now be very careful. Do not read 19th century slavery laws and practices back into the Old Testament. That was not the way slavery worked. In this particular, this was more indentured servants. These were ones who would, for six years, they would work under contract with their master. But what did God say in 21, 1 through 11? Hey, that seventh year, you let them back, go back home. They worked six years for you, but that's it. On the seventh year, they're free. You're not their ultimate master. There is a greater master. I am. 
the master of all people. Men don't own men. I own men. They are made in my image. In Exodus 23, 10 through 11, he talks about, you give the land rest. I have given you this earth to sustain you. Take care of it. Give it rest. And in the rest of the land, he made provision for those who were poor. Even for the animals, God says, I care for the provision of the animals. In Exodus 23, 12, he talks about rest for animals, for servants, for poor, for immigrants. In other words, when your life revolves around me, it impacts every other area of your life. Your yearly calendar. Come for Passover. Come for first fruits. Come for the ingathering. These were times when they were all to gather together in the place where God would put his name. Now, why is that important? Think about the context of what we're looking at here. In Exodus 20, God sets foot on the mountain, and what is the result of God's presence being among men? Fear fills their hearts. And they want to stand far off. They want to fall away. And Moses says, no, that's not the point. The point is God has come to test you, to reveal your heart, so that a healthy fear of him will keep you from sin. And so worked into the case laws, worked into the worship and how they were to come before God. God says three times a year, your men, the ones who have the responsibility for leading their homes, for setting the course, for being elders, they are to come into my presence. To be reminded that I am their God, that I am the God who sees, who knows, who hears, who understands them, you I know what you think. I know the way you live your year. Remember that. A fourth truth that we see here in the worship laws is that God doesn't leave them in the dark, right? He says, this is, these are my expectations. This is how you walk with me. And he's going to give more. The whole book of Leviticus is, is focused on regulations of worship. Why? Because we get to the end of Exodus. You see this beautiful tabernacle. You have the Shekinah glory of God fills the tabernacle. Sorry, I'm telling you the end of the story of the book. I'm sorry, but we've got to go here. You see the Shekinah glory of God filling the most holy place. In the chapter leading up to that, you see Moses did everything that Yahweh commanded him. Moses did everything according to Yahweh's commands. Moses did everything according to what Yahweh commanded him. But when the Shekinah glory of God fills the tabernacle, the next phrase is this. And Moses could not go in. So you get to the end of Exodus. God has set up his tent in the midst of his people. And he says, hold on. You can't come in yet. And then we have the whole book of Leviticus that then lays out this is how a sinful people, how a sinful priest, how a sinful high priest can come before a holy God and live. So we have the beginning of that. 
God says, I have come to have a relationship with you. I have come to put my name on you, but you must come on my terms. Here are my terms. Alec Matias said, it is not a religion of humans feeling after God, but of God coming to his people with emphasis, not on what, what, what we might do for God, but on what he would do for us in blessing. The altar is his. The offering is ours. He doesn't need our offerings. We need them because of our sins. He says, no images of gold. Don't try to bring anything to aid in your worship. Don't make an image to represent me. Pay attention to that. We'll come back to that in a few weeks. Don't go up the steps to expose your nakedness. This is to be different. I will not share my glory with another. A fifth truth I want to highlight here that these worship laws bring out is that God ordered that the first fruits of man, beast, and the harvest were to be consecrated to him. If you go back to chapter 22, verses 29 through 30, we see that these, these ideas of worship laws aren't just at both ends of the section on case laws, but it's also intermingled without the rest of the, throughout the rest of the text. And in 22... Verses 29 through 30, we read, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest, and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. Why? You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs." You are to be different. Your firstborn would be redeemed by the sacrifice of a lamb. You read elsewhere that even their firstborn donkeys could be redeemed by the sacrifice of a lamb. God recognized that they needed their donkeys for, as beasts of burden. God did not ask them to sacrifice their sons on the altar as other pagan nations did. But he said, they still have to be consecrated to me. How do you consecrate your firstborn son to me? You recognize that they are consecrated when you bring a lamb to sacrifice in their place. Consecrate the firstborn of your beast. Now this isn't happening one time a year, you see. As beasts are born, as they get their first fruits, what are they to do? First goes to God. First goes to God. I must trust God that as I've received the first, so he will provide more. It's a picture of faith and trust that God will provide what is necessary. How often? Whenever there's a firstborn. Why? Because God is the giver and sustainer of life. Sixth truth that we see here out of the worship laws. God promised to walk before them. Go to chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do. 
But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. You will, I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you against whom you shall come. Excuse me. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year lest the, the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea into the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. As you go into the land, in other words, you're going to get there. And when you get there, this is what it looks like. But notice, when he goes before them, who's doing all the work? He is. Go back through those verses sometime and underline everything that God promises he will do. I will send. I will make. I will drive them. I will set your border. I will take sickness away. Why? Because I am Yahweh, your God, whom you serve, whom you are to worship. I will go before you. I am your master, and I have set the course. Therefore, listen to my voice and follow me. Six truths that we see that just come out of these case laws regarding worship. And there's much more. But let's pause for a moment and consider how this impacts us today. We must never forget that we are born again, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John 1, 13 says. I did not come to God and say, God, make me your child, until he first did what? Chose me. Ephesians 1 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the earth were laid. This is by an act of God's will. He moved. He worked in my heart. He regenerated me. Just as God came to Israel and said, I'm initiating this relationship because God has come and he says, I have given you life. I have a right to your life. All of it. And so we must ask ourselves these questions. Is worship something we squeeze into our busy lives or does it set the pace for our lives? When you go through your week, are you excited? I can't wait to gather together with the people of God. I'm going to bed on Saturday night preparing my mind for gathering together with the people of God. I am coming before God daily. It sets the course for my day. Or is it more... You get to the end of the day and say, oh, I haven't spent time in God's word today. I haven't spent time talking to God today. I better squeeze it in before I fall asleep. Is our public worship, when we come together, do we seek to draw attention to man, to forms, to function, to religious practices? 
Or is it obvious that God and his word determines the course? Church, as I've talked to people that have been in our church, unbelievers even, I say, what did you notice about your church? They say, well, it's weird. Everything you do, you're opening up God's word and you're reading it. I've never seen anything like it before. You expect people to open their Bibles and to read them. It's like everything is driven by God's word. That's the way it should be, amen? Because that's the way the worship, the way God designed it. Do we worship God according to God's prescription or do we seek to dress it up, to create a wow factor, to draw attention to man's creativity and cleverness? When we gather together, are you, when you leave this place after having spent time together with God's people and God's word and singing songs to him and in prayer, do you leave with a sense of the all of God? That I must be different this week? That God has a claim on my life this week that I am moved to humility and brokenness? Do I come away from here refreshed? Oh, I'm so tired of wrestling with the curse of this world. And so there is a sense of a Sabbath rest when we come together and we come away from our, our struggling with the sin and the curse and we say, thank you, God. You are better. Hallelujah. You are the one that has redeemed me and you have promised to finish the work you started. Friends, we haven't even started the other case laws. <laughs> And we're not going to take time to walk through all of them. But let me, let me walk through real quickly. Just to give you a, just a feel of the heaviness of these things, very quickly, some of the general truths that are portrayed in these case laws. They're not exhaustive. God could have written a whole lot more. But they are extensive. First of all, we see that God cared about how they treated one another in their interpersonal relationships. As you work through some of these case laws, you will notice that, that God places an emphasis that man is possessed by God, not man possesses man. There's an emphasis on the sanctity of human life, all life, man, animals even, immigrants, poor, widows, orphan. And God cares how we treat each of those things. That in that we are reflecting that he is the God that creates. There's emphasis on not taking advantage of the weak, the vulnerable, but rather we seek to defend them. Why? God tells us why. Because you, Israel, were oppressed. You were vulnerable. But I saw you. I heard you. I listened. And I've come to care for you, to give compassion. Secondly, God cared about how they managed their livestock and land. Third, God cared about how they made restitution for losses caused to another, whether incidental or uh, intentional or accidental. Four, God cared that justice was served fairly, that punishment would fit the crime. You've often heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's not that necessarily if someone's eye were to be knocked out, you had the opportunity to knock their eye out. For even to write the next verse surrounding that verse, is a case of a servant who gets hit by his master and he loses his eye. He loses his tooth. 
The master, the servant doesn't turn and knock the eye out of the master, but rather, instead of him serving the full six years, the master is to let that servant go home early. You know what? I've hurt you. I've maimed you. You have finished your contract. Take the money and go. There is a fitting justice Within these case laws, you see that there are times when God gives humans the authority to take another human's life. Then protecting the sanctity of life. They said in these cases in premeditated murder, in the cursing and hitting of parents, in bestiality and sorcery, in worshiping of other gods, God says these things are so important. They so fly in the face of what is natural to man and what God we have designed man to be said these are to be taken to a more serious level. God also cared, number five, how they treated those he'd placed in authority over them. As if they were giving him the same treatment. So that he cares the way children respond to their parents. To the point that a child who rebels and curses his parents and seeks to beat his parents was to be stoned. What was God seeking to communicate through all these things? I am Yahweh, your God. I know all of your life. I see and I care. I care that you live the life that I have given you the way I designed it to be lived. But in all these things, and even in the discipline that is given here for the breaking of these laws, do you catch what he wants to do here at the tail end? And this phrase where he says, I will go before you. Do you see what he promises to do when they, they seek to live life intentionally with him impacting every single area of their life? He says, I have come to bless you. I want it to go well with you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to give you this land. He says, I have redeemed you as my people to worship you, to worship me with all of your life. And when you live your life with that intentionality and with that awareness, it will go well with you. They were looking for physical redemption. God said, I came to give you something even better. Notice in verse 23, 20 and 22 again. I skimmed over this. We read it. But I want to come back to this because it's our connection to the New Testament. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Question. Who's the only one that can pardon transgression? God. Who's the one that bears God's name? Jesus Christ. Who was going before them as they went into the promised land? He was going before them, and the emphasis here was, I am going to 
pardon, I desire to pardon your transgression. You know, this, this is wonderful. God makes these amazing promises. They've seen the lightning. They've seen the, th the thunder. They've felt the, the, the earthquake. They have the written laws before them. They, God is going to give them a tabernacle. He's going to give them a priesthood. They've got Moses. What could possibly go wrong? Well, come back in a couple weeks and you'll see. By the time we get to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, over 600 case laws have been written, given to the children of Israel by God. The Pharisees, the scribes have added so many more. There's thousands of laws that they seek to keep. And when the Pharisees, who thought they were, they were following all these laws, they did a good job. And they came to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist refused to baptize him. He said, keep or, or uh, bear fruit that, that it reflects repentance. I will not baptize you otherwise. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 3. And Christ comes to him and he looks at this good Pharisee and he says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You can't earn God's favor through keeping these case laws. That wasn't the point. You've missed it. Paul would write in Galatians 3. So what is the point of all these laws? Other than the fact that God is intimately, wants to be intimately involved in every part of our life, the point is, we can't keep them. We can't maintain a relationship with God. Not on our own strength. But rather, they were a guardian until Christ came. That we would not be justified by works, but rather would be justified by faith. Faith in God's provision. Faith in God's salvation. Faith in God's sacrifice of his son. Why? Because Jesus, as a child, he had favor with God. He could keep the law. Jesus, when he began his ministry, and when he was baptized, as he came out of the water, the father testified, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. At the middle of his ministry, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays, my father, if it be possible to let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as, but as you will. He was the perfect servant, the perfect master, the perfect child of God. He kept the law perfectly. And yet Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This was done so that God could say to his people of all time, I am Yahweh who bought you out of slavery through the shed blood of my son and I put my name on you that you might reflect me to other tongues and every tribe and every nation. Now live like it. He said, well, wait a minute, wait, wait. I thought you just said we can't live out all those laws. I thought we are saved by faith through grace. Yes, we are. But Titus 2, 11 to 14 says this, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. For what purpose? 
Verse 12 says, to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Yes, we cannot save ourselves by following a bunch of case laws. That was never the point. But God did save us. God did prepare ahead of time that we should walk in holiness as he is holy. So what do we do? How, what do we take away from this today? Only those who trust in Jesus' law keeping and his substitute death will be pardoned from all their lawlessness. We can't live it out, guys. We can't keep it. We must trust, just as the children of Israel did, in God's provision that he's made a way. Only those who trust in Jesus' law-keeping and substitute death will enjoy life in the presence of the holy God forever. But for those of us who this is true of us, that we are trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we must ask ourselves some follow-up questions. Do we squeeze God into our daily life? Do we squeeze him into our agenda, our plans, or does the worship of God permeate, saturate everything you do? God redeems his people to worship him with all their lives. Is it your desire and longing to be drawn near to the holy God regularly, in private, collectively, that you might be filled with an awe and holy fear to keep you from sin? Do you live intentionally, constant thought concerning how I'm loving God and how I'm loving my neighbor, how I run my business, how I parent my children, how I spend my leisure time, how I spend my money? God sees, God knows, and God cares. Because he redeemed us as his people to worship him with all of our May we see God afresh daily that his fear drives us to holy living before a wicked world. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us, but you reached down to us when we were not looking to you. That you chose to place your name upon us, you sent your son to die for us, and you've given us your spirit that we might know you that we might be transformed, that everything might be new, that we might renounce ungodliness and instead live self-controlled lives, eager and zealous to do good. Not that we would look better, Lord, but that you would be honored and glorified, that we would point other nations, other tribes in every tongue to you, that they too might see you as the holy God who sees who knows and wants to redeem them out of the curse of sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In closing this morning, won't we all stand and thus be dismissed by singing a familiar little hymn.